Hi, and welcome to Financial Planning Explained, and I'm your host, Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner, owner and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. Uh, we tend to, on this show, my goal is to provide an educational experience and, where possible, uh, entertaining. Um, on the different areas of financial planning, you know, six areas of financial planning are cash management, tax planning, which I thoroughly enjoy, risk management, investment planning, which I enjoy, um, retirement planning, and estate planning. Uh, today we're going to talk about investment planning, and uh, I've got my third guest ever uh, on the topic of investment planning, or shall I say, the third investment specialist. Uh, it just so happens that the second one was Mike Gooman, and all we talked about was his career as a running back at Penn State and in, uh, in the NFL, so we didn't talk anything about investments, but that was okay because I had a whole lot of fun that day, and I hope everybody enjoyed that particular episode. So anyway, we're going to be talking about investment planning, and uh, today it's kind of an interesting uh, topic on alternative investments. And you know, alternative investments are what? Uh, those things that are an alternative to investments. All right, good. You're an awfully smart guy, Mike. But anyway, uh, I'm here, and I'd like to welcome my guest today, Gaston Es. I blow it every time. Escadero. Escadero. All good. Happens all, right. all, all the time. Gaston, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So, yeah. Um, thanks for coming on. So, tell me, what, what is what are alternative investments? Yeah. So, alternative investments are defined as an asset class that's non-traditional. Right. Traditional asset classes are stocks and bonds, and right. CDs, more right. cash account type investments. Um, alternatives can be real estate, it can be infrastructure, it can be private equity, it can be non-bank lending, it can be hedge funds, oil and gas. I mean, really everything under the sun that's not traditional is right. considered alternative technically. And the goal of an alternative investment is to give you a return that's non-correlated or has zero correlation to stocks and bonds. Right. So that's what that definition is simply put. Right. And so so what I what I tell clients when I try to give them investing 101, I tell yep. them about there's three different asset classes. And you got stocks, you got bonds, and you got cash. Yeah. You know, CDs, money sure. market, and everything else like that. Now yep. there's way more asset classes. You got commodities and you yep. got real estate and all that. But yep. I try to show that. And the problem is, is that, you know, Generally speaking, stocks and bonds react the opposite of each other. That's right. And when we're talking about alternative investments in real estate is a perfect example of an alternative investment because if the stock market's going up, it doesn't have an impact on real estate. If stock market's going down, it doesn't have an impact on real estate. Yeah. And same goes with the bonds. And ideally, you know, we preach diversification and asset allocation. That's yeah. fundamentally, we preach that because that enables you to throw a bunch of different types of investments into a portfolio, and the more diverse they are, actually it reduces the overall risk to the portfolio, and that's the whole idea of adding alternative investments. That's right. For a while there, I was introduced to the alternative investments. I'm beginning to embrace them more sure. now, as you know, yeah. um, because you know there's there's we're in a very low interest rate environment, and in a rising interest rate environment, the risk that we run is bonds lose value. Now, I'm going to get today's disclosure. I forgot to bring it at the beginning. So in our industry, in both of our industries of investing, we both have a strong hand that beats us over the head called compliance. So if during the course of this episode, either one of us says something that we're not supposed to say and compliance tells us you're not supposed to say that, we may find 
after this show is over that we have to actually edit out. So if all of a sudden it goes and it's like, you know, <laughs> it reminds me of the, like, the, the bleeping you hear. Yeah, well, they're going to bleep yeah. it. They're going to make us cut it all out. So we're going to do everything we can today, all right, sure. without saying anything that we're not supposed to yeah. say. Good luck with it. Absolutely. Right? So anyway, so again, the whole idea is to develop a portfolio and to uh, that's diversified yeah. and with a bunch of things that react different. And the risk that we run today, and I call it a risk, is if you took the average portfolio that they talk about, they yeah. say 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Yeah. For me, who as an advisor, I'm guiding my clients, okay, you got 60% stocks, inherently they have more risk. Yeah. It's hard to knowingly put 40% of a portfolio into bonds that traditionally lose value in a rising interest rate environment. That's right. Okay, guess what? Breaking news. We're in a rising interest rate environment. Yeah, we're on the precipice right now. Exactly, and so actually, we are potentially exiting a 40-year period of a decreasing interest rate environment yeah. where all those years bonds did well. Yeah. But now if we're near bottom yeah. of interest rates, yeah. I mean, the bottom was really sure. in the midst of COVID. Yeah. Okay. Because why everybody buys bonds and, and the interest rates go down. But now what do you do coming off the bottom? And that is one of the areas where alternative investments helps. Do you, is that... Yeah, I mean, alternative investments, I mean, you know, investors have been investing in real estate, private equity, various types of alternatives for 50 years. Mm -hmm. And really up until 10, 12, 13 years ago, retail investors started investing in alternatives because it, like to your point earlier, 60, 40 portfolios did the job for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I think when you saw the downturn of, of 2006, 2007, you saw... 60, 40 portfolios get crushed, uh, you saw retail investors looking to make adjustments for any type of a downturn that might happen down the road. And so you're seeing institutional um, investment firms bringing high quality alternatives to the retail channel to help fund retirement, right? Today, you have investors that are aging into retirement every single day, all day long, and they're living longer. Mm -hmm. And we're on, in this low yield environment um, you know, how can you fund retirement appropriately right now and, and uh, really fund objectives and goals? And so alternatives can really be a great bond complement right. or a bond or replacement. replacement, one or the other. You know, it's important to have certain fixed income with that principal protection. But today, with given where the low yield, uh, yields are, even with high-quality bonds, 10-year treasuries, it's, it's really tough to find income today. So alternatives can really be a great complement right now. Well, it's interesting, um, yeah. and, I, and I've seen, you know, we look at this stuff all the time, yep. is we're actually inverted, and that's probably not the right word, but uh, we're at a point where real returns are negative. Yeah. Okay, and what I mean by real returns is if you were to buy a 10-year treasury, okay, which is the U.S. 10-year bond, yep. which is what is fundamentally revered as the sort of the standard. Yeah. You know, people, it's used kind of as a fundamental for mortgage rates. Yeah. And they compare the 10-year treasury to the Europe's 10-year treasury and Japan's 10-year treasury and China's 10-year, whatever they call the treasuries over there. Yeah. But what's going on today 
and it's been going on for a little bit, is that inflation is higher than the yield you're receiving on government bonds. That's right. So if I were to go buy government bonds and earn, let's say, a 1.5%, and inflation is 4%, I'm running negative. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I got to figure out a way yep. as an alternative to bonds. That's right. Not to mention, if interest rates rise, yeah. the value of a particular bond actually goes down. So that is really tricky on our side. Yeah, I mean, right now with the amount of money in the U.S. You know, government system, and I mean, obviously last year was unprecedented with COVID-19 and, and, and the, the need for stimulus, which was obviously warranted. Um, but asset prices are increasing right now. Consumer prices are increasing. Inflation is starting to pick up now. So you almost have to increase interest rates so things don't, don't overheat. Right. So you really got to get ahead of this thing and make certain adjustments where it's tough to make because equity markets are up. People are making money. So it's tough to justify being defensive and taking some risk off the table. But I think it's really important to hedge uh, portions of your portfolio against interest rates rising where fixed income will not serve as a hedge. But real estate, for example, real estate is probably one of the best hedges against interest rates rising because you can raise rents right. faster than the rate of inflation and interest rates because the economy is is so strong that it warrants increasing interest rates. So so, so uh, let's talk about real estate. Yeah. So you brought that up. Yeah. Um, but you talked about rents. So I know, I mean, we're in, well, okay, there's two ways of looking at it. Number one, you got commercial real estate. And number two, you got uh, residential real estate. So residential real estate, I mean, it's been crazy yeah. for the last year, year and a half. Sure. You put your house on the market, you know, you get 40 people go through. One day later, you've yeah. got 15 offers above what your sale price was. Yeah. Okay. Is that wise to be buying into real estate when the real estate market is, I'll call it irrational exuberance, if you remember those that's, terms. That's, that's, that's a great term right there. Um, and you know what, that, that, is a big, that is a big concern that I hear a lot uh, from, from folks like yourself and, and, and their clients. And yes, it's unprecedented what home prices have been doing. And what a lot of people I think may forget is that what led to the last housing crash in, in, of 2006, 2007, was because of overlending right. and overbuilding. That combination um, really is what was the, the, the bubble, bubble burst. Right. Today, we're in a housing shortage of about 7 million homes that are not being built to meet the growing demand for new housing. Not to mention, you know, the biggest generation throughout the country is millennials, 75.5 right. million millennials, and they are all aging into creating households. Well, yeah, they're the baby boomers' kids. That, that's right, and they don't have savings. Right, well, that's you know, And especially in blue-collar America, where maybe the average income is lower, um, you know, not only is buying a home today tough to do, but they don't even have the wherewithal or the balance sheet to be a homeowner. And so right now, we think that this housing shortage we're in is going to persist for... 10, 15, really? 20 years. Really? It's, it's not going to happen So overnight. in other words, what you're saying is yeah. you don't think that the value of homes are going to stop going up, or at least not maybe not as crazy, but they're not going to come back down, it's not at gonna, least for a while. It's not going to be a, some sort of a, a, an abrupt crash, you know, crash, you know, landing, if you will, because you've got that protection from this shortage, right? There's no overbuilding 
being done. A concern would be overbuilding where it's tough to, to get so, someone to move well, into. Well, supply and demand. Supply exactly. Demand. But yeah. you were referencing earlier raising yeah. rents and everything else like that. Yeah. That's different than actually buying the real estate, isn't yeah. it? You're talking about uh, what they call mortgage REITs, yeah. real estate investments trusts. It's REITs. Yeah. That's their the acronym. But are you referencing literally buying the properties or are you talking about uh, owning the properties and then your revenue is associated with bringing in the rentals? Yeah, so there, I mean, commercial real estate can be everything from office, it can be industrial warehousing, it could be retail shopping centers, it could be hotels, healthcare facilities, single family rental homes, it could be apartment complexes, really any real assets that are income producing. Mm -hmm. Um, is extremely important right now, um, but more particularly on the rental side, to your, to your original comment, um, given the affordability issues right now throughout the country, um, you're seeing this demand for renting apartments. You're seeing demand for renting homes, uh, given the cost of being a homeowner today. And sure. so when you see that, um, and you also you know, add in the, the extra outlier of COVID-19 and what that did from people migrating away oh, from yeah. smaller spaces oh, oh, towards the suburbs. Absolutely. You have you have certain apartment units or even single family rental units that might have ten to fifteen people trying to move into one to one unit. And so from a landlord perspective, you can increase rents. Oh yeah. Supply and demand. Know, on, on, yeah, supply and demand right now is very favorable uh, for real estate. And so right. You know, we may see a little bit of, of, of some equilibrium, especially if mortgage rates rise. That's going to make the cost of buying more expensive. But we think this housing shortage is here for, to stay, okay. given the cost of building a new home and right. the lack of land to build on. Right. And this, this, this labor market we're in is very tight. So hiring new workers to, to build new homes is tough. So home builders are having a tough time you know, having profit margin on, on new, on new right. homes being built. So. I've seen it. I've all, heard that. All the, all the homes being built today are typically three, four, five hundred thousand dollars or greater, because that's where you make that profit margin. But on the low end, is almost non-existent relatively to where it has been the last 20, 30 years. Okay, brought up some good points. I tell you what, we yeah. need to we're bumping up on break. I'd like to pick up this yeah. when we come back. Sure. Uh, you'll be with us. Uh, we'll be back with you in just a few moments. Have you saved enough for retirement? Are you financially prepared for an emergency or unexpected event? Have you thought about your financial future? Hi, I'm Mike Manager, founder of Manager & Associates Financial Planning. For over 20 years, we have been answering our clients' questions just like these as we develop unique and comprehensive financial plans tailored to meet their needs. When addressing your financial plan, we incorporate your entire financial picture, including taxes, estate planning, as well as investment planning and retirement planning. So call us today for a complimentary no-obligation consultation. A unique approach to financial planning. Welcome back to Financial Planning Explained. I'm Mike Menninger, your host certified financial planner, and I'm here with Gaston, who is our guest, talking about alternative investments. And uh, cut you off almost mid-sentence uh, for the break, but you were talking about real estate. And, and again, I want to really differentiate. You brought up uh, a concern that I had of residential real estate uh, being in a bubble, but kind of the way you were explaining it, 
it's a strong supply that a demand can't keep up with. So it's going to take a long time for that market to even think about going down. There's no uh, economic drivers to do that. So what you're talking about is um, a company like BlackRock. They were in the news uh, three, six months ago. Didn't they buy like hundreds of tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars houses not dollars of houses houses didn't they yeah i mean the largest money manager um you know you could argue it's it's blackrock or someone like a pimco and blackrock has just entered into the residential rental housing right. market i think maybe spent about six to seven billion yeah so that's amazing so what, space, what yeah. you're saying they did yeah. in theory they buy six billion dollars worth of homes yeah Okay, if the real estate market operates independent of the stock market and independent of the bond market, yes, right. basically what's happening is the underlying value of those $6 billion, billion? Okay, $6 billion worth of assets, if they're spitting out rental income, yeah. that might be 5% of the portfolio, then guess what? You're sitting back and just collecting 5%. And not to mention the tax benefits you get from being in real estate, too, that traditional asset classes don't provide. Right. Okay. Yeah. But is that passed on to the um, investor, like a small investor, or are you talking about to the big black rocks of this world? Well, well even if, if, if you went out and bought an investment property yourself, oh, okay. you would have the same tax benefits at a smaller scale versus maybe someone coming in with $7 billion. Okay. Okay. Um, I you, get it. Which is depreciation which you right. can pass on. So there's certain structures out there that will pass on all those benefits to investors. Okay. Yeah. You referenced commercial real estate, and this is, I don't know what, that I want to argue against it, but this is a concern I have. Yeah. Okay. Ever since we had COVID, um, we had the realization that, you know, people can work from home and all of a sudden they realize, hey, you know what? You know, we're still getting the job done and our profits are still good. And I remember when I was running, before I got into being a financial advisor, I was basically running all of the profit and loss in the books, you know, of a consulting firm. Yep. And that's where your assets go out the door at five o'clock every day. Yep. The reality of it is that after payroll, your single largest cost to the bottom line is rent. And if a company is renting 100,000 square feet and they realize, holy smokes, I can get away with only 50,000 because I can get all these people working from home, that's, right. that's gonna increase the bottom line of the company. That's well, right. guess what? If everybody's realizing this, yeah. then I would imagine that not not overnight, because if I'm in a five-year lease or you know, I'm five years into my 10-year lease, I still got five more years. I can't reduce my 100,000. But this, I have to imagine, is going to put a tremendous amount of stress on the commercial real estate market, which could flip that one upside down, unlike the real estate market, I mean, the residential real estate. Do you agree? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, there's many different sub food groups of commercial real estate. Um, you know, commercial real estate can be traditional office, which I think is what you're alluding to. That's probably one of the, the tougher places to be right now is traditional office <laughs> to what you mentioned. So. But, you know, like, like a grocery anchored Whole Foods oh, or some okay. big grocery store with a Starbucks and banks and nail salons, you know, as yoga as studios. they didn't all get shut down during yeah, COVID. Yoga studios. Uh, I mean, th those are many reasons why people leave 
to go uh, and, and pay for goods and services or those types of. So there's some good retail opportunities out there. Uh, but yeah, office is a tough place to be. I for could sure. see that. You Hotels took a hit last year. Uh, you could have the um, yeah. uh, the warehouse facility yep. for Amazon, which that's that, a bit good. That's a really good point. Walmart, uh, Firestone. You can have all these warehouse facilities. Yeah. Even manufacturing facilities, if they're still doing it. Absolutely. Okay, I could see that. But office space would probably so, be under. Industrial warehousing, last miles, you know, distribution centers. You know, healthcare, certain healthcare facilities, you know, aren't going anywhere. Um, Self-storage is, is, is a good place right now. Um, but yeah, I think office is probably one of the, the riskier places right now in the commercial real estate yeah, space, which working from home, that's the direct hit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you referenced earlier in the show private equity. And yeah. I think of private equity because I have a variety of different business clients yeah. who their company was bought out by private equity, which, you know, they may have paid $30 million yeah. to buy the company. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't have $30 million. No. But um, how do you get into that? Sure. And by the way, what's the difference between private equity and basically if I bought a company, it's no different than me buying 100% of the company's stock. Sure. Um, but what do you mean by private equity and sure. how does the average individual get in or can't they really? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what's what's really interesting, and and I learned this a few years ago, is about 98 to 99 percent of U.S. companies today are privately held. You see a very small sample. 90 percent of the companies, not by volume, but by the number. Okay. The, so I'm, I'm, I'm a private company. So the majority of all U.S. companies, whether they have ten dollars of revenue or they're an Amazon or right. or, 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 or some big you know private company, right? Yeah, Amazon's um, not private. Amazon, <laughs> um, they're privately held, and no one really knows they exist. They're not publicly traded. You can't buy shares into them, and so there's a whole world of private U.S. companies um, that need help growing. And uh, after the last downturn of 2006, 2007, where banks were lending on, on riskier assets. There's been some restrictions since then. Right. And so a lot of the big banks can't lend on right. companies that have 50 million or less in revenue. Right. So you've got companies out there that are considered non-bank lenders or private equity partners that will inject or lend oh, on private businesses. Oh, the business businesses. development corporations? Yeah. So okay. whether you're on the debt side of the company uh, or you're an equity partner, you can help a company grow and they hit a certain multiple and there's maybe a cash out opportunity. So there's a huge uh, universe of private equity where you can make a lot of money. And the part that is really neat that's considered an alternative is that that's not publicly traded. Right. So as the stock market's doing this, that private company is obviously not being valued every single day, all day long. Well, you know what? It's funny you say that because I encountered one that was just that. It was a business development corporation. And what they do is they're middle market lenders. Yeah. Okay, so they're lending to the Smaller too big businesses. for a bank, too yeah. small for Wall Street, yeah. and you'll lend them $100, $200 million, yeah. and basically they're lending them at higher rates, yeah. and you can buy into that. So, okay, I could see that. Um, I've also encountered, I don't know how to broach this, but I'm going to broach it anyway, um, investment firms that offer uh, a couple different types of investments. I've heard of long short funds yeah. and mergers and acquisition funds. Um, I know you're not as familiar with long short, so explain what that is. What a long short fund is, is, uh, and there are investments out there, okay? They're mutual funds, but they're, they're actively managed mutual funds where they look within a particular industry group 
and they'll buy one and sell another that's just like it. And what that basically does is enables them to, if that particular industry group grows up, well, guess what? They got the one that they bought and then that gains value and the one that they sold short loses value. But what, that's where the stock, you know, I'm not picking two companies are the same, but let's say IBM and Dell are similar. Then, then one goes up, they buy the one that they think is better, sell the other one. Or I've even seen them, they buy uh, a bunch of different stocks and then sell short the indexes. Yep. I tell you what, that's nothing that I want to get into, but there are companies that do that or buy and sell options within yep. the fund. But then there's another one out there that I know extremely well, and you also know extremely well, is a mergers and acquisitions fund, yep. okay, where it plays on the arbitrage. Okay, and what's the arbitrage? I'll give you an example. Well, you tell me about it. I, I know what it is. You tell me about it. It's your expertise. Um, you know, so you know, the last 25, 30 years, you know, you've seen just how globalized the world's become. Right. The advancement of technology. And you've got, you know, I hate to use Amazon as an example, but they're a great company to look, to look at because the quickest way for any company to grow or to add a new business line is through a merger or through an acquisition. Yeah, buy some else. Yeah, um, and, and a lot of it is is not hostile takeover. It's more friendly, you know, partnerships. And so there's opportunities, you know, for investors, myself, or even my my company or anyone, to take advantage of the hundreds of millions of dollars of mergers and acquisitions that are occurring monthly right now, uh, especially in technology, uh, logistics, um, cloud computing, really just the essential e-commerce horsepower behind the future right. longevity of every company in the world today. And so you can invest in certain companies that are about to be purchased um, and, and capture a, a certain spread there. Which is the arbitrage. Which is the arbitrage. Right. And you know, arbitrage can sound like a very fancy you know, word or- Actually sounds like a scary word. It, it's, it's a scary word, but it's, it's, very, it's very simple. And, it is simple. And that's an alternative investment in a nutshell, is doing something to achieve a return that's not a traditional buy a stock and just hold on to it and hope that right. it goes and up. Right, and so I'll give an example that I don't think are gonna get yelled at or cut it or edited for, is uh, it's not a great example, but it is a good example, is if for some reason Pfizer wanted to buy out Merck. Yeah. Okay, they, they may have things that the two of them together would be bigger and better. Yeah. Okay, and this happened for decades, not decades, but certainly in the 90s, you know, what would happen is the number three aerospace contractor would merge with the number four aerospace contractor to become the number two yep. so that they can get the, the government contract. Yeah. Okay, they were doing it all the time. That's a great example. But the example might be, and let's just say, for instance, that uh, Merck stock is $80 a share. Let's just pick that. But Pfizer says, I'll buy you at 90 Yeah. Boom. Merck does not jump all the way to 90 No. It jumped like 88 And so... What a mergers and acquisitions fund does is it'll buy the Merck stock at 88, knowing full well it's going to go to 90. It's a high probability. Right, you know, high, high probability. probability. And that's where um, there's hedging in right. place in case it doesn't. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great example. Yeah. Absolutely. So And so how does a, a, an investment like that uh, exactly generate the income every month? Is it through... Uh, selling puts and call options, or or is it just there are so many deals that go on that each month it's producing that gain? So um, I've got my, my compliance uh, ringer going off right now, so I can't really get into too much detail. Um, 
But it's, you know, a lot of these deals, there's so many companies that do these types of opportunities. Right. Um, and the average duration for a deal might be five or six months. So every five or six months, you've got realized gains that are being produced from right. some of the underlying uh, spreads that we're capturing. Um, and there could be dozens and dozens of deals at a time. Stat, you know, you know, right, ladder. so if you have a bunch of them. Yeah, throughout the year. Right, it's just, um, number. it's just a numbers game. I mean, if I had a hundred yeah. of them yeah. that I had in my portfolio, so to speak, yeah. then just if I had 120 of them, 10 of them should yeah. happen every month, yeah. theoretically. And, and this isn't, you know, I mean, this is, mergers and acquisitions are happening all day long, every, you know, all year long. But do I want to read 5,000 pages worth of SEC filings of to decipher not. if I can get 10 basis points? Right. No, you no, know? no. I so that. that's where you've got, you know, experts, you know, funds that are available with you. And that's to answer your question from before, how does a, a retail investor get access to this type of stuff? They really can't. Uh, and that's why there's certain mutual funds and there's certain structures if it hits, you know, there's certain you know, threshold of, of requirements and compliance, they can very well get access to through you. Right, right. So well, that's... Thank you very much for yeah. your explanation on a lot of alternative investments. Yeah. Believe it or not, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with you for today. Oh, good. Time to go home. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, anyway, so uh, this is a great, great type of um, discussion as it pertains to the investment side. Okay, it's also important to understand as it pertains to each of these different types of investments, whether it's REITs, whether it's private equity or uh, mergers and acquisition type funds, arbitrage. Uh, understand anytime you're dealing with something, you really need to know and understand the risk associated with it. Is it producing dividends? If it's producing dividends, are they taxable from a uh, uh, from a qualified dividend, a non-qualified dividend, and then when you do something like that, then you need to decide, do I put it into my tax-free account? Do I put it into my, like a Roth IRA? Do I put it in my tax-deferred account like an IRA? Do I put it into a non-qualified account where I'm paying taxes on it? So the long and short of it is that this is a good time as an alternative to bonds where this is a tough investing environment for bonds as an overall portfolio. Yeah. So I hope everyone's learned something today. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you next week on next episode of Financial Planning Explained. And I'm your host, Mike Manager, Certified Financial Planner. Have a great week.